On this week's Bet the Process podcast, we're going to be covering our first look at college football. Rufus is going to give us his thoughts on what teams are good and what teams are bad. We're going to be debuting a new segment, which is This Week in Gambling News, Sports Gambling News, where we're going to talk about uh, a couple different articles that were written recently about the industry. And then finally, we're going to be doing an introspective look at our Tout or Sharp segment. As always, the Bet the Process podcast is brought to you by the Sports Action app, which is the number one sports app to follow and see your sports bets and see what's happening with lines as they move, etc. And it's available for free on the iTunes store and on Google Play. So with that, let's start the process. Another season of the Bet the Process podcast starring Jeff Ma and Rufus Peabody uh, in Mexico City. How, when, do you, when do you come back stateside? You come back soon? I come back. So this program I'm doing ends on Saturday, actually. So that'll, that'll be a full year. Oh, my God. That's so it's sad. Concluding. It is. I'm heading to uh, the Caribbean for a week. Well, I'm actually heading to Tulum for a week. Then to Grand Cayman Island and then probably up to Montreal where I think I'm going to be this fall. So you're going to live in Montreal. You're going to be a Canadian. I'm going to be, I'm going to be a Canuck. How long can, can people from, this is going to sound like such a dumb question, but can people from the U S just stay as long as they want in Canada? No, I don't think so. And I'm not going to be like there a hundred percent of the time, but I'm just going to kind of have a base there. Are you going to learn French? No, I think I'm at the age where languages do not come easily at all. Hmm. Maybe I'll come visit you in Montreal. Canadian yeah, we, Canada's pretty cool. I was I thought Vancouver was pretty cool, huh? Seriously, I want to live in Vancouver. That city's amazing. Yeah. Well, that's not good for your romantic life, though. No, it isn't. I need to be close to Boston. Oh, that's so sweet. All right. So we are going to play around with some new segments this year. Um, and we love feedback from you guys. I think that Rufus and I were both really happy in, with, in some respects with the the off-season stuff we did just because it was kind of like a little bit more interesting and less formulaic. Um, but I think that for this football season, we want to try to experiment with both the mixture of what we did last year and uh, new things and new features. So we are going to get back into this concept of this week in futures where we talk a little bit about you know, what futures bets are, what, um, how they've moved, what kind of things that Rufus sees value in, what kind of stuff that he's down in. And we're going to start this year with college because college is right around the corner. We have the exciting Duquesne UMass game, which is going to open things up. Um, I don't even know if that game's lying because uh, Duquesne's FCS, not FBS. Um, but anyways, that being said, you know, how do you how do you even go about starting to handicap futures in college? I feel like there's so much turnover with players and whatnot, um, and just individual stats aren't quite there. Is it is it basically just a lot based on priors with some hand waving or what? You're right. It, it is a difficult challenge, and there, a lot is based on on priors. So so the first thing is to generate the the Massey Peabody ratings for each team, and to do that we use previous season performance and the particular the, our component statistics 
But then we also look at recruiting, you know, who, who a team lost, I guess, to transfers as well as incoming transfers. Is that quantitative um, at all or is that qualitative? Starters. That's no, that, that's, that's quantitative. It's, it's difficult to find all that information out there, but this, this year I kind of did a lot more work trying to get the graduate transfer stuff. But the thing is, I don't have like a database of graduate transfers back like 10 years. They're only really available for the last few years because graduate transfers are kind of a new thing or they, they're So are you just looking at like, thing. are you looking at like the raw number of graduate transfers or the raw number of those types of things and, and trying to assign a value to that or? Well, yes, I'm looking at the raw number, but I'm also looking at how, uh, how those players profiled in terms of their recruiting numbers. So I can sort of add that into that team's recruiting class. Um, even though, so, oh. in, in the case of so you're kind of like you're using relative rankings of recruiting classes. So you're relying on someone else's subjective measures to create sort of this objective quantitative measure. Yeah, I'm kind of using an ensemble of like averaging out a bunch of different recruiting stuff. And it's obviously not perfect, but I think gauging a team's talent level is pretty important. And I think it becomes difficult when you lose a key player like like, you know, for example, Oklahoma is losing Baker Mayfield. He was the first pick in the NFL draft, but he actually wasn't a highly recruited player. So this that's an example of a guy that's actually really integral to that team um, leaving. But He was a transfer, was wasn't he? Mayfield. Yeah, he was a walk-on. He, mm -hmm. he walked on to Texas Tech, transferred to Oklahoma where he walked on there. And he was not a highly recruited guy out of high school. And so he's leaving, but in normally we would say, um, and I guess Oklahoma isn't going to drop off that much. Like losing their quarterback is, is generally a big deal. But, but if you look at, you know, he's not this highly rated guy in terms of his recruiting numbers. So um, I think that maybe his absence is a little, the, the effect of his absence is a little bit understated by, by the Massey Peabody model. But then we also look at returning starters too, which is a pretty simple thing. I know Bill Connolly actually does returning like production percentage or something, which I think is a little more nuanced way of doing it. But what I found is that in general, the marginal gain from doing a little bit more work on that. And well, in this off season, I found the marginal gain from doing a little bit more work on the recruiting stuff is not nearly as, as great as I thought it would be. Interesting. So in terms of Oklahoma, you just said you didn't think they were going to drop off that much, but I'm like looking at some odds on Chris right now and they're 24 to one to win it all. And obviously last year they were, pretty damn close to winning it all they were you know one melt second half meltdown and then one game away from from it so is there value on them at 24 to 1 uh, i actually think there is i i make them 17 to 1 but as you i said I, I just that, you see how i spotted the value based on your analysis that was amazing. you just teed me up right there I i'm love very it. proud of it we didn't we don't rehearse this shit i mean that's anyone that's ever listened to this podcast can attest to that. that yeah um Interesting. So 24 to one on Oklahoma has some value. Um, let's let me let me look at this list also then and see from what people were last year to where they are this year. What about a team like USC uh, at 45 to one? I assume they have a fair amount of talent. They always seem to. Is there is that is there any value there? I mean, I think talking saying that they have a lot of talent is, is a fair assessment. And I think that early in the season or going into the season, a lot of it is sort of program level talent. I actually don't see value on USC. I make them 62 to one, but they are, it, it does seem like, you know, from the end of last season to the beginning of this season, the sort of mid-major type, like smaller schools that, that overperformed last season, um, I kind of expect them to drop off a little bit. Interesting. 
Uh, what about a team like, well, obviously Alabama is the odds on favorite again at, you know, are they? Plus two, what's that? Well, they are based on what I'm looking at, but, but it sounds they? like you don't think they are. You know, I, I've loved Alabama for years and years and years. And I think every single season they've been number one in our preseason numbers and a huge favorite to win. And this season, they're not quite as high. I actually wow. have them with, with the third highest odds of winning the national title. And they're the number two rated team. So they're they're behind they're behind Georgia and Clemson in terms of in terms of odds and actually just behind Georgia in terms of uh, their rating. The reason that Clemson is has a higher probability of of winning the college football championship, they're is, not in the is, SEC. Exactly, you got it. Yeah, interesting. So Georgia at plus seven sixty five. My guess is you probably you're probably on them from a little bit higher. Yeah, I like that. I like that number there. Interesting. I have them five and a half to one. Well, so that would be another one that I would have guessed it, right? Because they had a lot of sort of high-profile people leave, whether it was Nick Chubb or Sony Michelle. But like you've been clear, you've been pretty clear in saying that you think running backs, at least in the NFL, are overrated. So you would think that that would transfer a bit to college. Um, obviously, they they get the a full year of of who they think is the better quarterback in Fromm, and they lose Roquan Smith, who obviously was a, was a big profile, but but probably have people there to replace them and had such a great defense last year. Um, you know, that's that maybe that's a testament to them being underrated because some of the high profile people they lost and them not those high profile people not quite being as valuable as, you know, the average person uh, would, would think. I mean, they have they they've had a bunch of uh, really really good recruiting classes in a row. So I think we think that, you know, they they lost some guys, but they'll have talent to sort of fill in those holes. But you do mention particular players that departed, and the one the weakness of the model is that we don't take into account individual players, and so we're not able to say, you know, Nick Chubb is worth this much, like you know, losing him is worth this much. We're able to just say, okay, they lost or they lost a starter here, but and and that's what I said with with sort of with Oklahoma too. I mean, it's we don't know the model doesn't know that Baker Mayfield was super valuable to the team last year. They just know the model just knows that they lost a quarterback and that, that his recruiting numbers were such and such and, and he's being yeah. replaced. Yeah. What what about a team like Auburn at 30 to one, you know, they were pretty good last year, you know, pretty close to making that, um, you know the 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 championship the at least the the top four right they were yeah and they if i remember correctly they kind of made a late season push yeah they had the big they had the big upset and then they got they had the big upset over alabama and the iron bowl and then they got beat by georgia in the sec championship and then you know bama got in um ohio state didn't uh clemson got in and, and oklahoma got in and so that's at 30 to one, if you're just going off priors, that seems like good value, but maybe, maybe they lost more people than I thought or no, no, I think, I think you're right. I, I make them 22 to one and, and they're, I, I have them as the, uh, I think sixth, fifth, sorry, fifth, fifth rated team going into the season. So, I mean, right now we've both, we've basically been talking about teams that were really solid last year as well. Right. And that's, well, that's what I'm, I mean, I'm basically solid. just guessing off your rate, like, you know me, I just sit there and try to listen to what you say and try to glean some level of uh, level of insight from it. So, I think uh, I think what's interesting, though, is, is the teams that sort of made huge jumps from from the 
end of season rating last year in the Massey Peabody to, to the preseason rating. And I mean, there's teams that made jumps like um, into the top 20 that jumped 20 spots. Any idea who those might be? Top 20 spots. Uh, I don't know who was, the problem is I don't remember who was really bad last year. Um, I guess think of big programs that had down years. I think that's generally the best way to look at it. Michigan? You know, I, I anticipate Michigan improving. They, they go from number 18 to number 10. But their, um, uh, their hmm. rival, well, one of their rivals, I should say, Michigan State. Michigan State, yeah. Jumps from 36 to 12. In your rankings? Yes, yes. But they, yeah, and they were they were an interesting team. So so they're a team that probably will that Massey Peabody will like um, for the first at least few weeks of the season, right. I would guess, just because the the market won't really catch up to them, um, or maybe they will, or maybe when the you know the seven people that listen to this podcast go bet them, they'll they'll move all those lines. Uh, interesting. So that's that's an interesting one. What about what about Florida State? Florida State's an interesting team as well. Um, I, I have them. Let's see. I got to find them. Number eighteen. I mean, they, they were dropped, top. They were 18. top five they team last year. Spot. They were a top five team going into the preseason, right? Yeah. Last they, year, they lost to Alabama in that first game. They lost their quarterback, and then they just had a shitty ass season. So if you go back to your thing of just talent doesn't just leave, right? Exactly. They're fifty three to one. That seems like value. Eh, I mean. Being the number 18 team does not make, I mean, the, in general, college football is so stacked at the top that that just being the number 18 team still makes them 122 to one, according to my numbers. Got it. And just what about, just what about, what about Washington? Points. Washington has been a team that I've, I've heard some, some of my friends that are pretty sharp at college football talking about. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're the top team in the Pac-12, just according to my numbers, I have them 19 to one to win the, the college football playoff. And I see Westgate has them at 15 to one. I don't know. You, you said you had Chris open. I'm not sure what, you know, maybe Chris I have at 13. They have them 13 at 13 to one. Yeah. I mean, I feel like in well, general, what do you have 12, them at? Do you, do you make them, do you make a number for them to make the playoffs? Yeah. So I have them as 23 and a half percent to make the playoffs, but every team, with the exception of Oklahoma, every team that is more likely to win the college football championship than they are actually has a higher rating than they do. And the teams immediately behind them, Notre Dame and Auburn, are actually better than Washington as well. But being in the Pac-12, I think there is a is an e, there's an easier path to the playoff than there is if you're in the if you're in the Big Ten or if you're in the SEC. Got it. Interesting. Did you bet any of these? Will they make the playoffs? Um, you know, I don't think I did. I think, I mean, I have some futures, of course, but the, the biggest thing I bet before the season begins is the regular season win totals because you can bet every team that way. And I mean, you're, you're locking up money for a while, but at the same time, the edges have been been pretty good in the past. Right. No, I've heard a lot of the sharps have like, some people I know that are that I would consider sharp have sent me some of their their stuff. I, I just, I can't even, there's like, I can't even compute all those different teams, it's like hard for me to manage. Are there any good season totals that we can talk about that that you haven't moved that much? Um, you know, I'm not sure because I don't know where they are now, but I'll, I'll say I'm, I'm loaded against Alabama, actually. 
Interesting. Betting against them going undefeated, laying a pretty big price on that. So under 11 is minus 111. Right. And I think that should be minus 152. And, and I'll wow. tell you this. One thing with regular season win totals is that running a simulation, I mean, not, you know, let's say you, you let's say you have probabilities for each game and you can come up with the number. Like my number, I think for them is 10.6 wins. But if running the simulations is really valuable because you can sort of see what the distribution is. So the distribution is not going to be the same for each each team because, you know, you might have like six guaranteed win games and like, you know, actually with Alabama, you probably have more than that. Uh, and then you basically a few games that are going to be closer to coin tosses. And so the distribution sometimes like a half a win can mean a lot. Yeah. I mean, like that bet against Alabama, there's only going to be like three weeks that you're paying attention to it. It's like the other weeks are going to be blowing the crap, pulling the doors off of people. But the funny thing is going from 10 and a half wins, I, I line the over at minus 139. Then you go to 11 and the under is minus 152. And if you look at 11 and a half, I make, I make the under minus 264 there. So, you know, it's a half a win, but the, those are half wins with huge, huge impacts. How about Michigan State over nine at plus 101? Michigan State over nine. I, I make Michigan um, 8.91 wins. So, okay. um, so no over nine, either. I price over nine. At, actually, I price over nine at minus 112, though. So you're getting some value there. Yeah, right. I mean, the, you know, I, I'm not I'm not betting things where with very small edges though, because I know that there's a lot that my model doesn't factor in. Yeah, I think that any quantitative model like this, especially in college football, where you have so many people on the roster and and there's so much unknown, uh, I think it's it's difficult to be to be very precise. How about Florida State? Over eight minus one twenty three. I'm guessing that's too expensive now. I bet, I bet there was a point where there was some value there. Yeah, th- there's no value there. Okay, and then let's see. Last one. What are some other teams that we just talked about? Uh, Oklahoma over ten minus one twenty two. My guess is it's minus one twenty two because you moved it. Uh, no, no. Actually, I, I I think Oklahoma over ten is should be minus one hundred two. Interesting. Well, that, what I'm saying is, like, you you probably moved it earlier, no? Um, no, I don't think so. I don't think I have much of a position there. But I'll tell you where I found a lot of value, though, and and, and I think it's it's the schools that like in the MAC or the Sun Belt or you know the schools that that nobody really cares about. Well, like, the people I'm, I'm really, to, really people that went to those schools cared about it. Well, that's true. I'm very bearish on Akron, for example. Like I, I, and and I thought that, I mean, this seems crazy, crazy low, but I have them only lined at 2.3 wins and the over under is four and a half. So that would be, that's kind of the one where I, it it made me sort of question uh, if if there was something that I, something wrong, if, if I didn't put in the returning starters correctly, or if, you know, maybe there were, so you have them, you have them at what, sorry, under two and a half wins, 2.3. So the under four and a half is minus 154. That has to be your doing. Um, you mean it moved from maybe minus 110? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but I still think then, there's a ridiculous amount of value there. Right. No, uh, I, under, I, I understand that you believe there's value, but what I'm saying is like that line doesn't get that way unless someone like you put a pretty big position on it that but, they didn't want to move the number down. So they're just moving the juice down. I'll say this though, Jeff. It doesn't take a very big position to move these these college football win totals it really doesn't 
Yeah, so. well, they're not taking. Looks like they're taking thousand dollar bets on it or something. Right. Like that. You put a few. You put a few dime bets down, and suddenly you move something fifty cents. Okay. Uh, last one. I want you to check for me. The family in-law alma mater, UCLA, is only five and a half wins. My, they got a. They got. That's got to be an over, right? UCLA. Um, I make it five point five three. So. I actually have the under it might land at minus 107. So I got nothing there. So yeah. you're saying there's no value. What about Chip Kelly? He's gonna be great. See that, you know, that's something that isn't really factored in. I, I don't have coaching so, ratings. There you go. But I've always thought Chip Kelly was a little bit underrated and kind of got a, a raw deal in Philly. I think that, that's what I'm saying. So like, he's going to be able to squeeze out that extra half a win from your silly model, your little statistics, your analytics, whatever. Well, the problem is Chip Kelly had some innovative concepts and everybody else copied him. And so now, you know, it's no longer unique. Right. But then the question is, was he a one trick pony or is he actually like a good, you know, is he going to be able to adjust and do different things? I mean, I don't know, who knows? Okay. So... Anything else on college football that you want to talk about before we move on? Um, no, you, I, I guess we have the, the week, I don't even know what to call it, week zero or week 1A this coming week. I feel like since there's like one legitimate and you know game or like less than, fewer than four or whatever, I, I don't really think it's the first week. It's like the point one, yeah, week point it's, one. It's useful as sort of a trial run to make, to make sure everything's running smoothly for me, though. Yeah, every, everyone that has models and that uses those models and automates them is pretty happy about the fact that there's a pretty meaningless trial run week to fix things. I'm sure, like, the me- media companies are happy about that, too. Okay, we're going to move on to our next segment, which is a new segment that we're going to work on and we're entitling... This week in sports gambling news, maybe we need a a better title than that. Uh, But basically what we want to try to do is explore recent things with with all the scrutiny that's being put on to sports betting. Now, um, we want to talk a little bit about the sports betting industry itself from sort of a meta standpoint and examine sort of any any important issues from our perspective, anything that's surfaced in recent times since our last podcast. Uh, recently, and, and you know, people have been critical of us because we are sponsored by the Sports Action app, um, which which literally means they pay for our minimal production costs for this um, podcast. Um, Rufus and I have primarily been doing this podcast because we believe that this content should be out there and should be interesting, and, and neither of us is really focused at all on making any money off of this. Um, maybe one day we'll want to if we feel like the podcast is worthy of it from a quality standpoint. I don't think either of us thinks it's quite there yet. But the bottom line is that the Sports Action app is is involved in us because you know the, the people that started Sports Action um, are is a friend of mine, Brian Mead, and um, they merged with this sort of like and, and formed this action network um, with, you know, some some people that were investors and want to get into the media space. And, and that's sort of how the action network came to be. Um, there was an article in Slate.com about whether the action network can be a unicorn or not. And there was a very sort of controversial a quote by the Sports Action CEO, um, Noah Zabuski, Zubski, 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 and anyways, <laughs> and the quote was basically, if I have 8 million qualified users spread around the country and each one can legally bet through a book and there's an affiliate fee and a percentage of lifetime money, it's like happy fucking birthday, that's the billion dollar business. 
And now I think anyone that, you know, reads this quote is kind of just, you know, realize that this is very problematic. And the reason that it's problematic is the sport, sports action and the action network is trying to supply good content to gamblers to make them better at gambling, to make them, you know, theoretically give them an edge over the average person. So their customers, you should be better at betting than the average customer. And if you go into an affiliate fee where the actual sports books um, need to also make money, there's sort of this conflict of interest. Even if you don't have like a revenue share or anything like that, you're basically have these sort of like conflicting sort of uh, incentives where you're saying like, hey, we're, we're making you smarter. We're going to make you win money. And then you're saying, oh, but we're also going to ship you off to these companies that need you to lose for you to make money. And they're going to pay us to do that. So, you know, I, I, I've dug a little bit more into this. And from what I from what I know, I, I haven't talked to Noah about it. I don't I don't really know Noah. Um, but obviously, I know um, most of the people who are involved is, with Sports Action and the Action Network, he wasn't necessarily saying this about this was what Sports Action was going to do. He was saying like, because the article kind of positions whether this industry can be a billion dollar industry or whether a company can build a, a unicorn, which is the popular you know, thing that people talk about in Silicon Valley as those companies that are, are the billion dollar companies and like can... a you know, unicorn come out of the space. And the reality is, I think like you and I talk about this all the time. And we, we talk, I talk to people who want to get involved in this business. It's hard to see unicorns in this business. It's hard to see a content business or a data business becoming a unicorn in this business. And so I think he was just defining what he thought could make a company a unicorn versus necessarily saying that's what sports action was now. So, so let's just for that, let, let's leave this off the hook, but let's talk about generally from your standpoint, like how, how did this make you feel? And did you, were you like disgusted by this comment? I was just as disgusted as you were. I think it's, it's obviously a big conflict of interest. And, and even if sports action isn't providing content, that's good enough to actually make people winning betters, which I, I guess that's kind of where you could, I mean, like thinking back to like, I think pregame, there was a video of them saying that we're going to help betters lose or an audio recording of, of it was Fezzik and, and RJ Bell saying that betters are still going to lose, but they're going to lose a little bit less than they would lose. <laughs> right. Right. So, I mean, it, I would think that that's basically all the action network is going to be able to do if they're successful in terms of helping betters, because they're, they're, if they want to be big, you're not going to be able to be big and also provide winning content because you know, eventually you would cannibalize yourself, right? I mean, we've talked so much about about why the tout industry just is not a sustainable industry if you are actually good at what you're doing. And so I, I think that obviously, you know, being getting referrals from the Action Network, um, if you're a sports book, is going to be really valuable because you don't think that they're actually, you, know, you don't think that these are actually going to be winning better. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think so. Again, the, the, this goes in, and, and you know, not to attack, just just the general industry. The problem with it is that you, you start a company, you need to you need to make money, you need a business model, and the traditional media business model is advertising, right? And you know, like companies that build media networks make money advertising. That's not a big, but the problem is, the advertising dollars that are for gambling 
content is typically going to be from a sports book, right? And the best way to make money off of it is not even an advertising arrangement. It's like a straight lead gen or affiliate arrangement. And that's sort of like, again, like when we talk about us personally, like we wouldn't, I don't think we would ever do that, right? We're not, we're not in the business. We're not going to like let a sports book advertise. We're not going to let, like our goal is to great, provide great content. Maybe somewhere down the line, we're going to figure out a way to try to make money off this if we want to. But again, like that is the dilemma is like, it's just hard to find straight advertising and you can naturally gravitate towards, you know, sports books and affiliate fees, but that's a, becomes a really conflict of interest and makes it hard for you to seem as legit that you're actually helping sports betters make money if you're also being sponsored by you know a sports book like would you feel let's say somewhere that a, a sports book that we really respect like you know I, I guess if i say one of them then then we will essentially be, be yeah, let's, let's not advertise for any Let, of them yeah please. let's just say that one that we really would respect right is is interested in advertising with us would you be okay with that no i don't think so uh, i just i want to i would like to be independent completely independent and not have a perception of of any kind of conflict of interest so you just don't want any at all so basically yeah that makes sense and so people are going to give us crap because they're going to say we already have a conflict of interest because but i think that it's pretty clear that we uh talk critically about the sports action about the action network um when when they do something that we don't agree with so uh okay let's move on then because what we were talked a little bit about was just this idea of winning betters versus non-winning betters and whether content can help you make money or not, which brings us to the second sort of interesting thing that happened, which was David Purdom from ESPN wrote an article about the practice of banning players, um, uh, winning players in sports betting um, and, and how companies like William Hill are actively banning players uh, based on just them winning. Now, William Hill says they don't do it based on them just winning. Um, they say there's other reasons or they don't have to specify the reasons, but the gist of David's article was that they do actually ban players specifically for uh, for winning. So the first thing that, uh, you know, that I thought of with this is that this was a huge parallel to, to counting cards, right? And it's obviously something that I know well. And, you know, they can ban in Nevada, they can ban people uh, for being card counters and they can ban people for being what they call advantage players. And they say things like very similar to what he was saying in the article. They, they say things like, hey, we don't think that dealing cards to you is profitable. We don't think that, um, you know, doing business with you is profitable, et cetera, et cetera. And obviously, like to me, this has always seemed very un-American, unfair. And the actual law is that um, it, and it's been tried in the Supreme Court in places like New Jersey. They're not actually allowed. That's why in New Jersey, they're not allowed to ban um, winning players, um, they they can change the rules on them to make it hard for them. So, like in the in the parlance of of sports betting, they can probably make it such that they can only bet you know ten dollars or something like that on a game, but they can't refuse business to them. They can't throw them out of their casinos, and it's just interesting because you know one of the things that's interesting about this is that one of the rules is that you can't use a device to beat the game. So if I brought uh, iPhone into the casino and use the iPhone to count cards, that would be illegal. And I could actually get thrown in jail for that. 
But if I just use my brain to do it, there's nothing illegal about it. So I wonder if they're going to make a point that says if you're using a computer to beat sports betting, which I think any winning better is going to do, that you are actually using a device and therefore you can't – they can refuse service to you or they can tell you you can't play. That. Do you remember that you you didn't used to be able to have a computer or any sort of electronic device in sportsbooks in Nevada? That was right, but that wasn't because of that. That was because they didn't want you calling a local or calling around and like being able to scalp and being able to. And they didn't also want like the illegal bookmakers to be able to come in there and use their lines and that kind of stuff, right? I mean, that was more of an information thing than it was a technology thing. Exactly, but I mean, I think what you're saying sounds like a bit of a stretch because. I mean, I, I feel like, yeah, you're right. I, it, it sounds like a stretch to me, but but they're going to look for any way to if 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 we believe that the gist of this article is true, meaning that these sports books that are going to take over the United States are not interested in you know using information from smart people to inform their lines and are not interested in taking on more risk with the potential to take on more liquidity with the potential to make more profit. If they're not interested in that, then they're going to look for every possible measure to get rid of winning sports betters legally from their from their portfolios. Right, but they don't even they don't need a reason. They can just I mean do what William Hill did and and But and, what and what we're saying is reduce yeah. the limits. But but Jeff, even if I mean William Hill, I mean what they said was was very PC. They said we don't ban anybody just for winning. There I think they said there's tens of thousands of winning betters that who we accept action from in Nevada. And I'm sure that's true. I think what they what they omitted is they what they kick people out for is people that win and they expect that they will keep winning. So it's not just winning. It's winning with the expectation that they will continue to win. I suppose, yeah. I mean, so, right. <laughs> yeah. But it doesn't, it's like, who cares, right? It it's, yeah. it's, you're just saying that you don't believe that the, you, the, the EV of dealing with this person is negative. So therefore, you're going to just get rid of them. Well, and you, I, you, I, you know what I would like to see happen? What? And, and this is something that, if it works, will not pose any risk for a sports book or for, for, I guess, an operator, I should say, because it's not technically a sports book, but, but an exchange. If you could have like, an, a, I think you kind of would probably need it to be, you need sports betting to be legal nationwide and, and because you, you, need a, a, you need a lot of liquidity to make it work. And I don't think it would work within one state. But if you had an exchange, you could, you, you're literally, the operator's literally acting as a middleman and not taking a position. Now, obviously it's gonna, to, to be able to sort of get it up and running, you're gonna have to seed it. Um, you're gonna have to, you're gonna have to raise a lot of money because initially you're gonna need to have commissions below to sort of attract liquidity and you're gonna have to incentivize people uh, placing offers. But I, I, I think it's a, it's a good business, business model if it's done right, that could be competitive um, and, and provide a, an alternative to your, your traditional sports book. And I kind of think we're kind of going that way in general as a society. We have more peer-to-peer -peer things going on. And so um, it, you just basically allow, you're, you're just allowing two parties to make a bet amongst themselves, right? Yeah, I mean, I think, so the, the challenge with this, I think an exchange would be great, but the challenge with it is, is obviously what you said, the liquidity. And I think I think the bigger problem, and so there's ways you can try to get around that with like a mar more of a market maker model, where a market maker is is standing in the middle, and takes on some level of risk in the in between, but is always trying to look for two people, um, you know, at the side of each trade. 
So I think there's ways that you could do this. But I think the bigger problem is the philosophical problem here, which is in the United States right now, since the, the market is so nascent and, and very immature, I don't I have heard very few people with the analogy of sports betting being similar to the financial markets, meaning like it could become a real actual way that people like hedge funds and whatnot deploy capital and you know, when you talk to people that are really good investors, they're always looking for non-correlated markets, markets that aren't correlated with each other. And if you could become a win, winning sports better, you actually could provide an opportunity for a non-correlated asset or a non-correlated market. And it becomes very interesting from an intellectual standpoint. But I think that the thinking on this from regulators and from even consumers and the media is so far away from it. I mean, if you just look at the way it's covered, no one's making the analogies, even though the analogies should be there, right? Like I've mentioned this before. I talk to people in the financial industry and they talk about how you know, stock pickers, individual stock pickers beat the S&P 500 at the rate of about 7%. So 7% of the people, which sounds very similar to the idea of touts, right? Touts are probably 7% of, probably even fewer than 7% of touts are actually winning more than the average sports better. Um, but it, it's, it's interesting um, because I just don't, I just don't see people thinking about this industry this way yet in this country or, or many other countries. Does that make sense or not? No, it makes a lot of sense. And it's it's the problem is it's not really a free market right now. We have we have sort of um, we have governments involved. The government is involved in in determining who can and who can't operate. Right. So they, so they make these arbitrary decisions based on that. And then um, and then basically don't do any regulation aside from or I should say there's minimal regulation on top of that, which, which kind of creates this situation where it's not a free market. And um, and there's just sort of a a small group that can sort of operate in a, sort of in a monopolistic type of way. Yeah. I, I so hopefully, that hopefully that'll change, right? This, right. this was, this was your point in our last time where you were very adamant about this idea that, that regulators need to open the opportunities for more innovation. Well, I think if you had more, if you had more operators, then there would be competition for the average, uh, you know, the average consumers, you know, entertainment dollar right and so yeah. nobody i mean nobody's going to pay i mean if you have um you know nobody's going to pay two dollars for i don't know a bag of chips if across the street you can get like get the same thing for a dollar right i mean people are i mean some people what if they're different chips like what if that some of them are like awesome kettle trip chips and the other ones are like true shitty I don't know, Lay's or something. I mean, non, non ruffled Lay's or something. There's definitely, what's the shittiest potato chip? There's definitely a difference between betting the Yankees at Ladbrokes and betting the Yankees at Patty Power, I think, right? If <laughs> I've never betted either, so you'd have to tell me, but those I'm are just, two, you're two just making British analogies. Books. Yeah, British books. Okay. Uh, anything else on Perm's article? I mean, I think, I think it was great. I give uh, David credit for writing it. It was very, comprehensive in terms of um, the amount of information that he relayed in it. And, you know, obviously he gets a lot of uh, grief from people about sort of like shilling for the sports books, but he clearly took a very critical point of view, which I think 
um, was was nice and, and was needed. And again, like I think he put a lot of work into that and, and exposed this. And hopefully it's the beginning of a conversation, right, where people like us and people that are you know smarter than us are talking about this and trying to figure out ways to, to sort of make this a real industry. I think right now it's not. Right now it's just like kind of like a Mickey Mouse game that people are playing in the U.S. and, and betting a little bit here and there. And it's not even close to becoming a real industry yet. Right. And I think the average the average person that's not really closely in closely aligned or closely following the industry doesn't really understand that that, you know, that it is kind of like card counting that that winners get kicked out. And I think that I would like to see more reporters and journalists sort of investigate this and kind of. Um, and call these sports books out and at least sort of start the conversation because I think it's something that but I don't I don't so we had this conversation I don't think it's a journalist question anymore unless you unless you really think the bigger thing is just to raise this to the public I, I think this is where this becomes an, an issue that the public cares about is when all of a sudden the regulators realize that, that they're just not they're not making enough money off this because there's not not enough money flowing through this right the estimates that people had in terms of how big this industry could come in the become in the US like Every, you know, just look at the valuations of companies like Sport Radar and and you know Bet Genius, which Sport Radar was like two point four billion and and I think in pounds or something or in euros, and uh, Bet Bet Genius or whatever was like I don't know six hundred million or something like that. Just these crazy valuations for these companies that are making money in the space, and the reason is because they were believing that this U.S. market would provide such a big opportunity, and if it's run like this, like a Mickey Mouse operation, it's never going to become uh, a big industry is Disney World considered a Mickey Mouse operation? No, it's not. It's not. Okay. Even though Mickey Mouse is there, it's not a Mickey Mouse operation. So that was a, that, that was one of your best lines ever, Rufus. You got me. <laughs> no, so back to New Jersey, though. I remember this was years ago when Chris Christie was like bringing this case against the United States. He was talking about how uh, having legalized sports wagering would would cut down on organized crime. Because you'd have fewer people going through these sort of these their street bookies and and going offshore and having to deal with all the, the you know the sort of shady underbelly of of the gambling world, and so I think that if for that to actually happen, you need people to be you need everybody to or I guess you need the market in New Jersey to be competitive with the offshore market, and you need uh, people that would be betting a lot of money to be able to bet it there rather than have rather than going offshore, and I think that could be a big issue. It's super nuanced. That sounds like something that to me that sounds like something that could be political. I mean that that sounds like something like whether you're, or not it's a, a real issue or not. But I mean, like, like it's not could be a hot button issue with politicians or something. The problem with that is like people have to understand exactly what you're getting at. This is it's a nuanced. It's a very it's a very astute observation. But it's nuanced in like that. I don't think many people will completely grok what you're saying. And, you know, they won't understand how easy it is to make a bet with like a street bookie and, and how like reputable a lot of street bookies are, which is which is crazy to think about. Right. Um, anyways. Uh, OK. Last thing uh, before we end is just talk quickly about tout or sharp segment. Um, you know, last last time we talked a bit about uh, Aaron Schatz and Vegas Dave and, you know, I think there was this sort of uh, talk on Twitter that, you know, maybe we shouldn't do this because we're sort of like attacking these people. 
And, you know, I, again, like one thing that I've always said is that, you know, anyone we talk about on the on the podcast, I'm happy to have them on and let them debate their point. And, you know, in, in the cases of most people, I, I hope that I remain civil and just be, I'm trying to talk critically about what they do. I think the Schatz argument was very nuanced for me, and I don't think people fully got it, which is just my pr- main problem is that I feel like he has a responsibility as one of the leaders in the analytics space to not just throw analytics out there without sort of rhyme or reason and represent and represent them or his methods for what they are, not for what they're not. So they're a very smart method for evaluating football, but they they may or may not be a smart way of 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 actually you know predicting future outcomes from a gambling standpoint. And he represents them as such by selling them the way he does. And to me, that's not the right thing to do. And that was my main point. And to me, that's even an interesting philosophical conversation about analytics, which is that when you think about analytics and when you are a leader in analytics, part of the problem is not just how do you do the analytics, but how do you represent them and how do you gain influence and how do you create value and edge with them um, in whatever industry it is. And I think that's just as important as the you know raw you know commodity of doing the work around that um you know i think it's a segment that's important for us to continue to do i think it's we need i I do recognize the criticism that we need to be careful about how we do it and you know like sitting and dragging people's name through the mud that that's there's nothing constructive about that so i'll always hopefully be open to feedback from people when they say like hey you're not very fair there or that wasn't a very interesting segment or whatever but for me, it's an important thing that I think you and I are able to talk critically about different people in the industry with the idea that, like, I hope when I do something incorrect or say something incorrect that they will talk critically about the way that I do because that's what sort of makes everyone better is by having people, you know, critique you and give you criticism. Yeah, you know, I agree with that. But I think that the way we criticize people sometimes can be, I mean, it, it, when you criticize somebody's livelihood and say, it, you know, it's worthless. I mean, that's, that's what you did to Marco. <laughs> of course. And, and I'm not saying we shouldn't or should or shouldn't do it, but I'm saying we can't just say we're, we're not, we, we can't say we're doing this to try to help like these touts realize the error of their ways because most of them know exactly. what. Well, I think in some, I think in some cases we're doing it to talk critically about people, not to make them realize the error in their ways, but to give them feedback or whatever it is. And, you know, hopefully that's like a uh, an ancillary benefit of all of this. But I think we're doing it one. I mean, why why do we do it? We want to educate people about educate. some of these things. Yeah, like just, like if we, somebody if someone says they have twenty five years of experience as a winning better, why would they ever be selling their picks? Okay, maybe we'll cover that one <laughs> on a future episode, and that seems like maybe a good place to stop as a teaser foreshadowing a future episode of touter sharp so as always thank you guys for the time um we enjoyed uh feedback from you guys on twitter on what we should be doing in the future obviously we have a big season coming up in front of us so would love any uh thoughts on on what you'd like us to cover in future episodes uh rufus got anything else you want to say bye from new mexico from mexico city not new mexico city new mexico city that'd be cool new mexico state (laughs) Uh, okay thanks guys we'll see you guys next week